You're listening to old-timey crimey, crimes from the golden age of yesteryear. Now, here are your hosts, Christy, Amber, and Scott. Hey, it's old-timey crimey. I'm Christy. I'm Scott. And I'm Amber. And we are here today with our very good friends from the Transatlantic History Ramblings podcast, Lauren and Brian, you guys want to say hi? Hello. Hey, everybody. It's the podcast from another mother. (laughs) Indeed. We are going to be chatting with them today about some of their areas of expertise. And I'm sure because it's us, we'll get into other areas that uh, at the moment we can't predict. But uh, it'll be fun when we get there. So... (laughs) So Lauren is currently... uh, if I understand it right, you're working on your dissertation in medieval prisons? I am, yes. I've had to change the focus area of uh, the dissertation because um, I found that there's a PhD thesis that was looking at similar things that I wanted to look at. So now I've changed them to the social um, impact that they had on the communities wow. around them. Wow, oh, that's amazing. Uh, wow. <laughs> I wouldn't have thought about that particular uh area to attack to to see you know like how they affected them any interesting findings so far well um there weren't any um designated court buildings during um the period that i'm looking at which is roughly the um end of the 13th century to about mid of the 14th century and um so they were courthouses some of them were even used as um meeting places um, town halls and they were also in a very small area so you'd have um, churches and you even had the um, Knights Templar close by to Newgate when it first went up as well so it's a very you know it was a very it, they were they had a presence and even at the time that I'm talking about um, prison wasn't the um, main um form of um, punishment it was a new form and it was mostly used um, in the pursuance of debt oh so okay so what mostly other you know offenders would perhaps be um hanged i assume (laughs) they would remand um prisoners that were waiting execution and they were and they would have um murderers there as well but the murderers would be kept um, in the dungeons of the prison, so underneath underground, whereas the debtors would be ca- would um, be kept um, in the higher levels. And there was a debate, you know, should you have debtors and murderers, you know, on the same wing of a prison? So there were lots of interesting um, experiments with uh, what prisoners went where and um, and how prison prisons looked and how they were run. Um, if you went um, to the fleet prison. The keeper of the fleet prison was also in charge of keeping the Palace of Westminster as well. Oh, wow. That's that's a couple different responsibilities. Yeah. So he would um, pay the £20 rent for the fleet prison, but his duties would also be... Um, would also be t- uh, taking care of the Palace of Westminster and uh, preparing it for the King and Queen's visits because uh, the court moved around the country um london was emerging as the central government but um 
even in the 16th century, you find that kings and queens went in progress. They wouldn't stay at one palace, um, you know, for if the plague was in town or the hunting was good elsewhere. You know, it was always, always something that was in motion. I love that she said if the plague were in town, like it was touring like a rock band. <laughs> I also like that. That's honest to God right where my brain went. <laughs> well, there were lots of different sicknesses. There was the, there was all, the one that they feared, which was the Black Death, but also there was the sweating sickness as well, which um, arrives like a flash in a pan and then it disappears, never to be seen again. Maybe it's COVID. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> that would be interesting, yeah. Uh, so actually, I guess on that note, it probably was pretty rough sanitary conditions within the prisons i'm sure i mean they, they weren't great up to begin with on the outside i'm sure they weren't anything to brag about on the inside they're not that great now yeah that's true <laughs> um, they weren't great sanitary conditions and they fell into disrepair quite quickly um and richard whittington who was the lord mayor of london and has um and how you know is a bit of a legend in his own right with it. Dick Whittington, the pantomime and everything. Um, he left a substantial amount of money to Newgate for them to restore it, and that included building a wing that was uh, for use for women as well. So, um, women prisoners is a bit complicated, and it's not something that you can really capture in twenty thousand words. But they were under the jurisdictions of their husbands. So um, they wouldn't necessarily be the ones that got into trouble. It would be their husbands. And if they did, they usually would be turned over to the care of their husbands. A woman wouldn't get into debt in her own rights because she wouldn't be able to own property. And any money that would be given to her would be given to her husband. So usually it would be the husband that would get into it. Right, I got a better example. And since Amber's here, let's say the woman started some fires. <laughs> What kind of trouble would she get in as compared to her husband? Well, her husband would be in trouble for not keeping control of his wife. Ah. And she, she, would, <laughs> she would also be turned over to his care. Uh, she wouldn't likely face any type of prosecution. But he, what he might do to her would be to probably send her to a nunnery or a convent. Now, wait. Hold on here. You're telling me that Back in those days, you could be sent to a convent even though, let's say, the pearly gates had already been parted. Yes. I'm not quite sure where you're going with euphemism, but the things that went through my head. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, yes, they, they, you could. Yeah, um, yeah they could. Especially if widows as well. Um, it's, it's a bit of a strange hierarchy. It's... Um, it's a virgin, um, a widow, and then a married woman. So they are the, there's the hierarchy of women. So if you uh, were a widow and you uh, abided by society's rules, you were seen to sort of regress back into a sort of virginity. So the look on all of your faces at that statement was <laughs> precious. Retro, retroactive virginity. Okay. <laughs> You've known the touch of a man, but just so long as you never know it again. But he's dead. And so, but if she was married to him, but he's so a, can we have sex with his corpse? Is Jesus okay with that? 
Well, technically, no, we're all married to Jesus, and he's dead, so that's kind of ah, like... Ah, yeah, actually, anyway. the medieval mystics had um, two types of marriages to, to Christ. They had um, the marriage to Christ, the man, and then marriage to the Godhead. So, mystical marriage is up there. And they actually had... Um, they actually had uh, wedding ceremonies and um, hallucinated marrying Christ. Wow. That's, um, and in great have detail. Have you seen oh. Russell movie, The Devils, where the nuns at the convent go crazy and tear the crucifix off the wall and masturbate with it? I mean, that's all I'm envisioning right now. Wait, you have to go crazy to do that? Because, I mean, I'm... <laughs> I've just been doing that, but I've got paperwork to say that I'm completely saying. It was a Ken Russell movie, so. <laughs> Actually, it's a funny thing. I kept in contact with Ken. He was my favorite filmmaker. And when he was alive, I, from when I was like a teenager, I would write letters to him. And we became pen pals because this is before the days of email, internet, and things like that. And uh, one of the things he actually confessed in a letter to me was that was the only scene he regretted doing in his entire career. And this was some, a reference to a recent episode of our show. Did I ever tell you the story of the time I accidentally walked into the convent? No. No. You I'm tell not. your convent story, I'll tell my convent story. Well, my convent story is <laughs> boring and weird, but uh, I was going to see a play that a friend of mine was in. Me and this girl I knew were driving to another city to see a play that a friend of ours was in. It was at some Catholic school. And we couldn't find the building. We didn't know where the hell we were, so we're walking all around, and we finally found one building with lights on, and we walked in, and it was a convent. And there were just all these nuns, like, in, like, Reeboks making Jiffy Pop popcorn. It was really bizarre. So I just kind of said, yeah, I'm just here to drop her off, and I ran out the door. <laughs> just leaving out I, the convent. <laughs> I went to grief counseling whenever I was 16 years old with my mom, and it was at a church that we'd never been to before, and... So we're like walking around the grounds trying to find our way in. And I, I go, excuse me, ma'am. And this lady who had happened to be walking by the church, I said, we're looking for the grief counseling sessions. And she goes, oh, I know where they're at. Follow me. And we're like leading and talking normally to her. And then we get up and there's a priest. And he goes, oh, hello, Sister Margaret. And I, went, I looked at her and went, wait a minute, you're a plain clothes nun? I didn't realize those things existed. I think that's the start of a horror movie right there. Follow me. I know where it is. It was a bit creepy. I'm not going to lie. Was she hot? No. It's a lot of like hot nun stuff on the internet. Yeah. You know, the, uh, the hot ones, they get to work at the hospital because they figure, well, you know, you get to have that one last fantasy before you die of COVID. Well, none of the ones that making the Jiffy Pop were hot. <laughs> because all the hot ones were at the hospital. I guess. <laughs> The Jiffy Pop the nuns. <laughs> yeah, it was weird. They were just like making pop, and they kind of just looked at me like, what are you doing here, type of thing. And the ironic part of the story, which I found hilarious, is the play we were going to see was The Diary of Anne Frank at a Catholic school. So. <laughs> ah, interesting. So, yeah, that one kind of gets me weird. Do, do you think the nuns were preparing for movie night? Maybe they were going to watch Sister Act for the um umpteenth time? I don't know. Do you think in the, the Catholic school, the play reversed the roles in the Frank family were the villains? Oh, dear. <laughs> that's, <laughs> Sorry, that's that's some weird alternative history if, if Germany would have won the war. You know, as, as someone that had to go to Catholic school, I would say maybe. 
Because <laughs> we did Alice in Wonderland, except it wasn't Alice in Wonderland. It was Alice in America Land. Really? They retooled the whole thing. Jesus. So I would not, I would not put it past them because Catholic schools do weird things. Yeah, and they, they kind of blame the Jews for killing Christ, don't they? Probably. They yeah. do. The opinion of the Jews um, back at the formation of the of the Catholic Church and even into the Middle Ages was sort of um, they are they are the they were the chosen people and they were misled, which then uh, turned into they are Christ killers and they are the abomination. Chase them out of your lands. So it's a real like episode three of Star Wars things where the rest of the Christians are down there like looking at rabbis going, you were the chosen ones! Yeah. The rabbis are down there screaming in the lava. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty That's much. That's about right. Yeah. 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 I want to know um, how we got here from medieval prisons. Um, it's not far of a leap. You, Brian, you. That's, that's how we ended up there. It was, in fact, you, Brian. Yeah, can you say that? I learned it from you, Brian. <laughs> I'll say that. Oh, Theo's got a question for you, Brian, and oh, I think okay. it's to do with his no why he's being naughty. Come on, then. You say it. Oh, he, he, he knows that you know Camilla, and he wants to know, um, are you going to get her to say to send him a message? Well, I don't know Carmela. I know someone who knows her. He knows somebody that knows Carmela, and that they've got to wait till COVID is over. And they'll see if they if she's if she's not busy enough. If she's not busy, she'll send you a message. But I'll tell you a secret. She actually lives close to the people that we're talking to on camera. COVID's gonna be a long time. Oh. COVID's gonna be a long time. She like a time. Pittsburgh girl? She does live in Pittsburgh now, yeah. Oh, hey. There we go. Oh, he's he's sad because he said it's gonna be a long time, because COVID's gonna be a long time. Could be. Yeah. It's already been a year. Yeah, but which is like Brian, a sixth of his life. Yeah, Brian is going to do his best for you. Brian will. Oh, he's gone now, which is which is lovely. <laughs> that, that was the topic at hand. I'd also like to really congratulate you, Christy, on, on pronouncing it right when you said "hanged" instead of "hung." Because I did get in trouble on an episode of our show when we were talking about six monks that were executed, and I kept referring to six hung monks. <laughs> different things. Very different. <laughs> well, we don't know. They could have been. I, I think, yeah, they could have been. I think I get it right about 50% of the time. Like, I know when I'm saying it wrong that I'm saying it wrong, but I just kind of breeze past it and hope nobody calls me I always say it. hung, and it just seems more normal, doesn't it? They were, were hung. Sounds better than they were hanged. I think it's just Americanized English. Well, yeah, I think probably that's the case because generally when the, the sentences were passed down, it would be, you know, we'll be hanged from the neck until death. And so I think I think the usage of hanged is pretty specific to the act of actually putting a rope around somebody's neck and then letting them drop. <laughs> but these monks. Oh, yeah, they, they were legendary monks. Yeah, yeah. All the ladies wanted them, but they were, in fact, monks. So that, that wasn't going to happen. Celibacy. Such a shame. Yeah, yeah. right. Um, Size queens. 
one question I had for Lauren that I'm curious about is how did you come to medieval prisons as, as an interest that led you to the extent that you're doing your dissertation on it? Like, is this, it, this isn't a, like a, a usual like childhood interest, maybe, maybe teen years. I don't know. I'm just wondering how you, what your path was. Um, well, I want, originally I applied to do a history MA, but that was over the, oversubscribed and they said well why don't you do the medieval studies one which um i've always wanted to do an ma so i was like yeah okay why not because you know you don't know how you know when you're going to get that sort of easy and acceptance from a university to say you know you can't you know this is oversubscribed but here i have this so i thought i'll just go with it and um, I think if I'd have done a history MA, I would have done something about the imprisonment of the suffragettes, which is uh, one of my other big projects. But I think, um, but I think it was a natural progression from that. It was, um, it would be something that I'd have done at any point in history. Um, and prison is, is an interesting topic at any point in history, the social implications. Um, and um, I think it went from there, really. Interesting. On that same note, um, Brian, how did you get into, uh, what was your pathway to, to Ripperdom? Wow. Um, my pathway to Ripperology, which, like I said before, is a term I hate. That's why um, I didn't use it. Yeah, we don't glorify <laughs> the killer. Uh, mine came, uh, my interest came out of the normal way people become interested in something. I was 14 years old at the hundredth anniversary of the case. And during the uh, centennial, there were a million books and documentaries and TV shows, and it was everywhere. Ripper, 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 Ripper. And, you know, you find an interest when you're that age, it can become a lifelong obsession. And that's what happened. And the great thing about, the, the Ripper field is you start out fascinated by this case of these criminals. Then eventually you work your way into thinking about suspects. Then you get bored with that. And you start thinking about victims and then you start thinking about the police. And then, you, so you go through these phases till you become a historian that you like me, I am far more interested in Victorian London um, in Victorian England and the poverty surrounding it and the social conditions than I am about the case at all now. And that's, you know, it's just evolved into there. But, um, you know, I've, I've lectured around the world <laughs> on, on the Ripper and I still do lectures even during COVID. I've done a couple online ones and, Oh, I've contributed to a couple books. I'm writing another book right now on, on a suspect, believe it or not, even though I'm not a suspect guy anymore. I just became a researcher helping someone, and he did two books on this suspect, and the third one's coming out, and uh, they basically are using my connections to my publisher for the third book, so they're going to have me write it because that way it's going to get published. Um, yeah, it's just a... It's, it's an interesting thing because people hear you're a Jack the Ripper expert and it creeps them out and they don't realize that it actually is far more than just the case itself. Like I said, my passion and my interest now is the social conditions of Victorian England and Victorian America and, you know, how everything affected it. Um, but I remember I was flying to Baltimore 
for a for a conference, a Jack the Ripper conference, which yes, people there are Jack the Ripper conferences. So I, I board this plane and a woman sitting next to me, an older woman. And I say older, I mean, you know, ancient because I'm older. So if they're older than me, they're really old. And uh, so we start chatting like you do on a plane. She's like, oh, what are you, I'm going to Baltimore to see my granddaughter. What are you going for? And I said, oh, I'm going to speak at a conference. Oh, really? What kind of conference? I said, oh, Jack the Ripper conference. That was the last word spoken the entire flight. <laughs> New seat, please. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, it, that, but that's how it is. And, and people don't realize that, no, I'm not there to like, you know, who the ghoulish, you know, killing of women and, you know, mutilating women and ripping their entrails. No, me, I'm more about, look at the social conditions of the, of, of the poorest of the poor in the richest city in the world at the time. And that's, and that's how I met Lauren actually, um, both as researchers researching, um, things surrounding Victorian London and Jack the Ripper. And we realized that, hey, we both have a sense of humor. Most people don't in this field. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to let you in on a little kit, clue. Most people don't. That's true. That's very, very true, sadly. <laughs> but uh, for about two, three years, Lauren was like, we should do a podcast. We should do a podcast. And I'm like, you know, I, I work full time and I write full time and I lecture part time. And I, I don't know if I have time for this. And even if we do do it, we'll never be able to do it regularly. And finally COVID hit and we started a podcast and we've been incredibly regular with it. It's become another full time job. <laughs> but uh, and, and that's the great thing about our show is that we're not tied to any one topic. Because we're both researchers and historians, we talk about anything we want from any point in history, from hung monks to nuns and Reeboks making Jiffy Pop, to Neanderthals and dinosaurs, to the Lincoln assassination, to Jack the Ripper. But the sick fuckers out there only want to hear the true crime, which is why your show is so damn good. Thank you. We're a bunch of sick fuckers. <laughs> Could be. We really are. I've this whole thing. I've just been quiet because I've been watching gifts of people get killed. So I mean, <laughs> faces of death. The gif. No, no. I found this one. I found this one website called Rekt. R e k t. Yeah, it's good. Oh dear. Okay. Writing it down. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it, it it's it. In true crime is a weird. Like I said, I was fourteen. So I got hooked on it and it also helped that, you know, my mother who shares a brain with me, she has the same sense of humor, except she's like a born again Christian, which is really weird. Um, but she will call me up all the time and say, you look at these cocksuckers doing this crazy shit. You know? Mom, language. Yeah, that's how she is. We don't oh, wow. use the crazy word. That's insensitive towards the insane. <laughs> oh, no, she's, she's got papers to prove it. She's, oh, cool. you know, but, um, she was always a true crime fan. And, you know, I grew up with, you know, all these books around the house that she was reading about, you know, Ted Bundy and the Zodiac Killer and, you know, uh, modern, contemporary true crime, a lot of 70s true crime, you know, she was into. So that kind of helped fuel the fire, too. It did lead to interesting revelations in the satanic panic of the 80s because, you know, there I was, a long-haired kid 
who wore black clothes, listened to rock music, and was into true crime. The police in my town actually told my father I was a devil worshiper and I must be like, you know, sent to like, you know, I don't know, rehabilitation training and shit. Because, you know, the satanic panic was a little weird, but. Uh, you too? I got devil worshiper too growing up. And I was just a fat kid. I told my father, your son's a devil worshiper who's out killing animals or, you know, slaying babies and shit. I never got to go trick-or-treating as a kid because of the goddamn satanic panic. We had this weird thing in Salisbury, Pennsylvania called the Halloween Frolic, where we all went to a sweaty goddamn gymnasium and played games, and they paraded us around the stage in a circle. And now that I'm saying it, it sounds really fucking cult-like. It really does. Not only cult-like, but very, um, I would send some investigators in there. (laughs) I don't think the Halloween Frolic is a thing in Salisbury anymore. Thank God. Yeah. Jesus Christ. I got to go out trick-or-treating, but, uh, you know, only when I was, you know, sacrificing animals to Lucifer, apparently. Um, That's where the candy is. Which is funny, because my father knew that I was also this nerdy kid who did nothing but sit at home and, you know, read books and play my guitar, because I'm, like, an obsessive musician my whole life, too. And I would, like, play music every night of my life till my fingers literally would bleed. And then when that would happen, I would read. So I don't know when I was out doing all this devil worship stuff, but uh, apparently I did. Well, it, it was people thinking it wasn't your fingers bleeding. It was animal blood. Oh, it could have been animal blood. Yeah. yeah. He's reading book learnings of the devil. That's right. Dad I was bu- reading bizarre things for a teenager, so I will admit that. Did your dad buy it when the, was he, was he like. My dad's not the brightest guy. Ah. You know, there's a reason my parents have been divorced almost my whole life. (laughs) (laughs) By the time I was, by the time I was accused of being a Satanist, uh, it was, it was, my dad had been long gone. My mom never bought it because quite honestly, I didn't have my driver's license at the time. So if there was any satanic meetings, she was going to be, going to have to be the one driving me to them. And she realized that, Hey, you know what? Scott's probably not a Satanist because I don't remember dropping him off at the Church of Satan uh, last Saturday night. I think that's whenever they have their deal down there. And well, I admit I was an asshole about it, too. Like, when I knew they were starting to accuse me, I started leaving, like, satanic leaflets and Anton LaVey books all over the place. Well, You're going to accuse me of this shit? Fine, fuck it. I'm going to play up everything. Here's the it. fun thing. I found out who had been spreading the rumors. Was it your brother? It was my older fucking brother. Ah! It me? It was the actual police. Yeah. Oh, my brother was a prison guard. And I'm going to tell you a little secret about prison guards. It's having a different class of criminals watch the criminals. Yeah, okay, I'll go all the way back to, you know, my mother was also a true crime fan. So I grew up, you know, in the 70s, and she was very big into contemporary true crime. Uh, the Ted Bundy case, um, um, the uh, Son of Sam, the um, Zodiac case. So there was always books around my house about true crime. And, you know, that helped n- my mother not thinking I was a total depraved freak for getting into the Jack the Ripper thing because she understood the appeal of true crime. Yeah, it definitely helps to be, if you're a true crime, uh, we'll say, enthusiast. It definitely helps to be in a family where people get you, you know, if, if, if they don't, then they kind of look askance at you and, and 
ask some questions and well, maybe consider funny. therapy. My brother is 15 months younger than me, and we were practically raised as twins, Irish twins. And uh, he had no interest in the Ripper killings, no interest in Jack the Ripper, none of that stuff. But uh, we went to London together, him and I, to, to uh, go to a concert, believe it. Longest road trip we ever took for a concert. We, we flew to London to go see Eric Clapton at the Royal Albert Hall, which I had to say because that's just badass. You got to admit, that's a badass reason to go to London. Except for the hot dogs. You did not like the hot dogs. Oh, they were the worst thing I ever had in my life. <laughs> <laughs> the hot dog or the concert? Everything. All English food. Everything. Oh, Toads and holes. Bangers, water sausage that explode, some sort of weird soup that my friend brought me. That, like, speaking of hot dogs, did you know you ever cut a hot dog in half and you see the little white bits? The soup was apparently all white bits of the hot dog. So, I mean, all all English food is just. I have been asked to describe the hot dog that I've often said is the worst thing I've ever had in my life, and I can't say I ate it because I literally spit it out after biting into it. I've never actually eaten a turd but i know what it's like to bite into one now that's the only description i can give of this hot dog in london that is that is horrifying but but you were talking about your your trip to london with your brother to see clapton yes (laughs) so we fly to london to go see eric clapton at the royal albert hall and uh i said when we're in london i'm going to the east end of london I'm going to all the locations that still exist from the crime. And I want to go around the East end. Now I have the worst sense of direction of anybody you'll ever meet. I would get lost walking to the library, which is literally at the corner of my street. I cannot find my way home from anywhere. If we're going driving anywhere, I'll have to ask my brother all the time. Where are we? Because I I have no sense of direction. So he says, all right, if we're going to do that, we're going on one of those tours because I'm not going to trust myself walking around the east end of London with you because you don't know anything. We get on one of these tours, which, big mistake, we did not pick one of the good ones. Lindsay Siviter, uh, who's our good friend who does Ripper tours, uh, those are the ones to take, people. Don't go for the cheap ones that my brother booked. Because I ended up actually leading the tour because I knew a lot more than the guide did, and the guide admitted that. But I knew my way around that area like I'd been there my whole life and it was the back of my hand. And that scared the shit out of my brother because I can't get around my own hometown. And I knew that area. But uh, he loved it. And when we took the tour and we were done and we got back to um, Hyde Park, which is pretty much where we were staying, he goes, huh, I get it now. I get the whole Ripper thing. That was just so fascinating that whole the history of everything not just the killings so we're not ghouls so so you only needed to take him all the way to london and do an actual tour of the area where it took place for him to finally understand your interest yeah pretty much we're still riding the high of clapton because the trip was all his idea because i've been the guitar player since i was four years old he's never picked one up in his life but yet he worships clapton like a god Go figure. I think it's a little gay crush. He's heterosexual, but he would sleep with Clapton, and he admits that. (laughs) Um, And uh, so he might have been riding the Clapton high, which is possible, but uh, yeah. He finally got it after actually being there and seeing the sights. Well, what's left of them. 
Oh yeah, yeah. I'm sure there's there's a lot of r- things that are you know McDonald's now. Well, this was '09, and since then, much of it is gone. Lauren can speak to that because she goes there fairly frequently. But um... yeah, and most of it has gone. Even Mitre Square, which was one of the pretty much untouched um, scenes, has now been reduced very fairly fairly dramatically, and there. They're um, building a huge skyscraper um, on part of it as well, which is very sad. Well, it's sad, but I also look at this. One of the things that fascinates us is how poor of a district this was. And the abject poverty and the horrible conditions. And the fact that it's still a growing city and building should make us happy. Yeah, yeah, the history aspect of it's gone, but all those problems that we were so upset with are showing that we're still doing something to improve it. Oh, no, so, the problems that were still there are still there. The problems that were there are, are very much still there. Well, well, they are, and you know why that is. I know Lauren does, but I don't know if, if the three of you understand why. What made the East End so bad and so poor is it was the area... At the time, was a lot of um, Eastern European and Russian Jews that were fleeing and coming to England. Um, so they were the immigrants, and it was a very poor Jewish ghetto. Well, in most cities, and, and you see, it, you guys are in Pittsburgh. You know, I'm from Buffalo. All big cities have sections that are where the immigrants live. And as those immigrants assimilate to society and become second and third generation and they grow out of it, they eventually move. And then the new wave of immigrants come in. So the poverty stays. It's just a different group until they come out of it. Right now, at least the last time I was there, it was mostly um, Indian and Pakistanis immigrants in the East End now. Now, Lauren, you can correct me if that's changed since '09. No, no, that's pretty much still the same. You do have, you do still have a Jewish community there as well, and it's quite nice because the synagogue is quite is next door to the mosque, and it's all very, they you know they coexist so lovely. It is it is a lovely area. If you look past um, the homelessness and everything, it, it, it's the people are lovely there. Yeah, and the drugs are a problem. Like, alcohol was the big problem in 1888. Well, now it's, you know, it, it's it's drugs. And, you know, prostitution is still rampant. And that's every poor section. And, you know, I know some people like to blame immigrants or criminals. No, but it's it's poverty. And it's whatever group is now the new kid on the block that has to rise up and become part of the society. It takes a couple generations. And it'll happen there, too. Within, you know, 50 years, the Pakistani and the Indian population there will have grown out of that area, assimilated more into British society, and the new wave of immigrants that, in my opinion, will probably be Australians, damn it. I just like to blame Australians for everything. (laughs) Um, But it'll be someone else, and it'll start all over again. Society has its way of keeping their thumb on the low people, always. And the low people will change every generation. But, you know, a lot of people in quote-unquote ripperology hate when people 
from outside of it come in with a new theory or a new idea. And right now it's very fashionable to go after Haley Rubenthal and her, her book, The Five. Which, I'll, I'll, I'll be honest and I'll be upfront here, I've spoken to her directly about it. I, I've messaged her and been in touch with her when, when the, the war between her and the Ripper community started. I decided to stay completely out of it and contacted her and said, look, this is why they're mad. I just want to explain it to you. I have nothing against you. As a matter of fact, I actually really liked the book. Disagreed with it. She She's wrong. But it was a very good book, and I love where it's coming from. And, it, and that book will get people interested in the topic and start studying it. And that's more important to me than anything else. I think the issue with Hallie's book is that she uh, did a lot of work about uh, Georgian prostitution and uh, 18th century, 17th century prostitution in Covent Garden, which was a different setup to what was happening in the East End. And I think that she went in with, you know, we all do it as historians. If we all move from one era to another era, we always carry a bit of bias from the era that we're coming from to the new research topic and I think that she thought that she would find the setup she found in Covent Garden in the East End which wasn't true because what was happening in Covent Garden was because of its proximity to where um, the elite were living Yes, you had all these organised brothels and you also have the Harris list which is um, a list and description of all the prostitutes in the, in the West End so um, when she didn't find that I think she closed off her um, she closed off her ability to acknowledge well not so much acknowledge but see that they were prostitutes as well that their prostitution comes in different forms. Yeah, and I, what she didn't get was that they they weren't professional prostitutes. The majority of them they were casual prostitutes. These were women who were selling themselves to eat. They were selling themselves to pay their rent. They weren't like I'm a prostitute. This is what I do. It's like oh my God, I have to buy, you know, I have to buy bread for my baby to eat. And they were saying, is that prostitution? Yes, it's still prostitution. She wouldn't acknowledge that that was prostitution. So she was claiming they weren't prostitutes, it wasn't this. And then when people called her out on it, this is where the problem was. She took to social media calling everybody who disagreed with her a misogynist. Um, The the other issue as well is that um, in two of the two of the cases they were known to um, behave in the way that the ladies that she was used to researching um, Elizabeth Stride and Mary Jane Kelly had been professional prostitutes however what's interesting about Mary Jane Kelly is that she was actually people trafficked yeah over over to well there is a high there is a high probability that she was trafficked to France under the pretense of going to be a governess and then basically having all her stuff taken away from her and having only what she was sit standing in and, and you she really man- want the shit to hit the fan now with ripper people I don't think Mary Kelly was a ripper victim that's just Put that to one side because we're talking about Hallie Rubenhold at the moment, Brian. Yeah, uh, I, I, I just wanted um, to call it a little drama here. Yeah, you're you're all about the drama, Brian. Oh, uh, but she, you know, there is this thought, and it's a very strong thought, and it's a very and there is very high probability that it it was true 
she was the mistress of a tall tale unfortunately that's why we have so many issues with knowing who she actually was because in all probability mary jane kelly may not have been her real name we don't know um but so you know you've got her attaching these very problematic labels to people when it's a lot more complicated than that and even when you listen to the reasons why she discounted a lot of the of the newspaper reporting again that's problematic as well because um you can't go in with a bias and it did seem that she was she thought that what she found 200 years earlier would be happening in Whitechapel and it wasn't and i think that's and I think that was, I think that was a shame. I think she had a very strong premise, and because it didn't, what unravelled and what she was finding wasn't what her initial, you know, outline to her publishers was going to be. That she had to dial it back in and um, create it into something that would, you know, that the publishers would still want to publish and what they'd be marketing. And that being said, doopy to be the devil's advocate, but on the side uh, that I'm usually not. The truth is, I think she's a great writer. Um, I like her. And on a personal level, I like her. All the interactions I've had with her were very pleasant and friendly. Um, she didn't attack me and go on the defensive when I spoke to her, even about what the problems people were having. And I think the fact that her book was so successful, far more successful than anybody in, quote-unquote, virology's books have been in 50 years. Oh, no. It is a good book, and it's solid, but... I, I don't and it'll think, bring people into the field. I, I don't think it's a testimony to her as a historian. I think it's the problem with, um, you know, publishing popular history. If you went with a publishing house that was uh, that is an academic publishing house, you know, the the rigor would be there. You know, you wouldn't be allowed. You, you know, they're not trying to sell a million copies. No, and what's sad is, you know, a book like Paul Beggs' The Facts which is probably the greatest book ever written on the subject, you know, won't sell one one hundredth of what Haley's book sold. And it, it's a thousand times better. And I'm going to plug that again, not just because Paul's my hero and I, I love the guy, but because anybody interested in the topic should really get Paul Begg's book, The Facts. It's just called The Facts. Jack the Ripper, The Facts. Paul Begg, B-E-double-G. I'm going to have to uh, look into that one. And I think another thing about uh, Haley Rubenthal's book is that it did come along at a very fortuitous time when much of true crime was starting to realize, hey, we have a, we have a little bit of a problem with focusing so much on the killer and not enough on the victim. Which is what I've always hated. Like I said, that's why I hate the term reparology. But she also misrepresented the fact that she was the first one to do this because there were hundreds of books about the victims and more research done about the victims than in any other crime in history. So she wasn't the first to do that. She, she wasn't just even happened the to best come along to do a, And she came along at a very fortuitous time. I mean, a lot of publishing is is luck and timing, honestly. Yeah. She was the first one to have a mainstream publisher accept the premise of the victims. She was also, she also came along at the height of the Me Too movement, um, where it was all about women as victims. And yeah. it was a perfect storm of timing. 
And, you know, she was the right name for it. She was the right face for it because she was very respected and already very well known. And like I said, the good is it'll bring tons of people into the study of it. The bad parts will fade with history. They'll forget about it. People will forget what her book actually said. Because once they get more into the study and subject and they realize, oh, it's wrong, they'll forget that. But they'll be in it now. So she's done far more, more good than harm. And I like her personally, and and I actually like the book. You can like something you disagree with. That's what people don't get in today's America. You Mm. can still like something you disagree with. But she has, you know, I have seen it from friends that I have in Ripperology, and they have made some very, very unfortunate comments about Hallie. And it's not about her as a historian, it's about her as a woman. Yes, that's that's, horrible. And I think that is horrible, and I think that proves the point of her book. But she said she's done the same thing to some of the men in Ripperology. Yeah, but I, I, I do think that it was done to her first, and I think that the that the only way, the only way to deal with those people and and you, um, is to do it back to them. Unfortunately, they will only that that it there that is that is a very unfortunate thing to say because retaliation. I, I gotta disagree. I gotta disagree. You've gotta if you're gonna change minds and hearts. You've got to come at it from uh, a, a position of compassion and understanding and, and really, really try to change, like, the way a person perceives you. If you throw, if you throw that same thing back at somebody, that's just going to prove their story about you. You've got to show them that you, are, you can rise above them and be compassionate back in the face of, in the face of, of some really horrible allegations. And what she really should have done is just responded with cha-ching and dollar signs because it made her more money. <laughs> I think knowing the people that did say those things, and um, and I do, unfortunately, um, it, they they are they they are the type of people that if she was being polite and back uh, polite and nice to them, they'd have seen that as a weakness. So her only real recourse was to sort of hit, hit them back with their own language because that that's yeah. all they understand. Lauren's right, and, and, and I'm sure this happens in other fields of historic study. Um, Ripperology is far too opinion-based a study instead of a scientific study. So there are people who just try to make their reputations and egos on their opinions and their theories. And if someone comes along that disagrees with them, they attack because they take it personally. They don't take a scientific approach. Whereas that's one of the things the person I work with, whose books I've helped research, are scientifically written. The common people find them, you know, your true crime fan isn't going to read his books and be interested like a nail biter. But someone with a scientific study will. Because it's very meticulous, and that's how it's written. Um, that's why the third one that we're doing, I'm going to write to make it more of the nail-biter kind of thing. But they will fight on the inside over stupid shit because it's about ego and not about facts. That's why, you know, a lot of study, like true crime study, isn't like science. Because... Look, how many Ted Bundy books have you read that are totally different radical opinions and they bash each other? This person's a moron because they believe this. Well, this person's a moron because they believe, you know, and it's just like, no, you're you're guessing. 
you're all guessing. And Ripperology is probably the worst of that field because it's the biggest of that field. There's no one in Ripperology gets along. And there's so many different aspects to guess at. Even, even with the, the wealth of research and, and that we have, there's so many different like moving parts, I guess, as far as the case is concerned, because you change like one or two little things and, you know, your pet theory could be completely smashed to smithereens. And, you know, who, who knows if those particular things are true or not. So it's, it's just such a broad and detailed case that I think that can cause a lot of, you know, arguing over even just the tiny details. And it's so ego-driven. I mean, I was always lucky that I was the, the center of the road ripperologist for 30 years, that everybody on any side of it got along with me. No one had a problem. I was always there to help anybody with any research and do everything. I was Mr. Friends with everybody. Now, there's, let's say, two main groups. It's like the, 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 the sharks and the jets of ripperology, and they hate each other. And if you're friends with one of them, the other side will instantly hate you. It's kind of like in American politics. Well, Lauren spoke at one of the conferences done by one of the people on this one side. And because I do a podcast with her, people on the other side have cut off friendships with me. Wow. Lauren isn't even associated with that other group. She just spoke at a conference. No, I've not. I've not spoke at a conference. I'm not talking... You know the one I'm talking about. I don't want to give names on here. No, I've not spoken at a Jack the Ripper conference. I've spoken at academic conferences. I've attended conferences. No, nobody's... Nobody's... Like, one person has, but that was fine. They explained it to me, and, and I wish them all the best and everything. But... Oh, no, like, I had people get pissed at me because I was doing a show with you. I know, I know about that. I know um, that we've had to explain to people, and now that we've had... Um, we've... We've had authors on from both sex. <laughs> we've we've had well, I, I don't know. I think I, I think one author was originally, but now isn't, and has distanced themselves. But I think now that we've proven that we are that we aren't, yeah, that um, that it's fine now. Yeah, it, it, but that's how petty it is. It's that juvenile. And it's like, come on, people, we're all working towards the same thing. We're trying to find the facts and the truth of this case, which you're never going to solve. Sorry to break it to you, people. It's never going to be solved unless you invent a fucking time machine. (laughs) It's the only way. If you invent a time machine, you probably have a couple other priorities. Well, yeah. uh, Like, you know, gambling. That would be my big thing if a time machine came about. I would go and stop some of Amber's fires. No. No, leave those. (laughs) But I'll take some Powerball numbers. How <laughs> dare you? Those fires were necessary were. in the eyes of God. He told her himself. No, but they were necessary. <laughs> yeah, so Time Machine solves the case. Bickering by uh, people on the inside will not solve the case. And that's one aspect of, like, of research and, and just, you know, academia in general that I think it's so hard to do because we do like to make things personal and we do like to have our pet theories that if anybody disagrees with them, we're like, well, to hell with you and, and have a hard time being open-minded because we get so attached to our own 
particular viewpoints. And I think that if you're going to be good at, at doing that kind of research or, or, you know, presenting that kind of research, I think you have to be unattached. Well, I'll tell you something. That's what I love about, and, and this is going to sound like the sap. You can put all the sappy music you want over this. And this is not just me kissing your ass or, or flirting like I always do, but that's what I love about a show like your show is that here we're going to take a topic. We're going to take an old timey crimey, pick any random one, and we're going to talk about what we know about it, what the facts are. We'll say what it could be, what we think, and we'll just discuss it. But we're not taking it personally and saying, I've solved this. I'm so smart. I know better than you. You're just presenting what it is. Here's the facts as we know them. And you're sending your audience out to say, hey, man, go read more about this if you want. Go check this out. Do your own research. We're just giving it to you. That I love that. I love that approach. Thank you. And I'm absolutely going to put sappy music over that. You shall. Uh, you shall. You shall indeed. <laughs> um, but it, but it's true. So few people do that. A lot of true crime podcasts are very opinionated. If you've noticed, <laughs> I'm sure you have. Um, yours doesn't do that. That's why the other podcast that I'm obsessed with and I, and I always rave about and our other sister podcast, The Strange Sessions, with Kurt and Krista. I'm the biggest skeptic in the world. I don't believe in anything supernatural, okay? I just don't. Bigfoot? You believe in Bigfoot, so well, that's not supernatural. You. That's real, okay? <laughs> <laughs> I love the foots. Um, I've been mistaken for him a few times, so I love him. I, I agree with him. Not supernatural. Aliens aren't supernatural. Big feet aren't supernatural. Bigfoots. I'm saying big feet. Each one has two. See, I have big feet, so it's Bigfoots. Ah. Sasquatches. Sasquatch eye. God, yes. Oh, my. <laughs> um, but their show, every episode is they just take a random strange topic, and it could be anything paranormal, supernatural, just bizarre, you know, mysterious disappearances, uh, you know, from D.B. Cooper to aliens to, you know, magic cults and things. And they never preach about it. They just basically break down what it is, what people believe. Here's the facts. And it's funny because a lot of times they'll call bullshit on it themselves. Yeah, I think this is a bunch of garbage. Even though they're both believers, they met as ghost hunters. <laughs> so they believe this shit. Um, they're so personable. They're so friendly. They have such a great chemistry because they're old friends from Wisconsin. So they got that accent and it's just, we're going to present it. It's strange. It's weird. Here's a bunch of different theories about it. Make up your own mind, read more about it, have fun with it and uh, listen to us be, you know, friends with each other. Great show. I, I think you might have been inaccurate uh, as to their, their former profession or maybe current. I don't know. I think they're ghost hunters. Oh, it's a ghost hunters. You're right. You've listened to their show, apparently. Uh, no, we have Amber. So my mom's family is from Wisconsin. And as I drink, the accent becomes stronger and stronger. And so that is one of the words that I can almost never say, although I've been practicing. Um, but yeah, it's usually ghost. Oh. <laughs> Now, you see, now we're going to have to do a crossover episode with all three of our shows together because... Bring my, my accent out so hard. <laughs> you will... First off, their show is great. And I'm going to promote that here, too, because people... The Strange Sessions, Kurt and Krista, are wonderful. Great show. And it's it's got that attitude like yours where 
you know, we're not preaching. We're not claiming to be the authorities. We're just giving you the facts. The whole point of that was I'm plugging them because I was praising you. Isn't that weird? That's fine, though. And I'm, I'm going to give them a, a listen because I think that sounds fascinating. It, they are great. And, uh, and and their show is sort of similar to ours in the fact that it's each episode starts out with the two of them talking. Then they'll actually do a taste test. They have listeners send them food and stuff in from all over the world that they do a taste test of. And then they go into their topic. But um, great show. A lot of fun. Wonderful folks. And they're from Wisconsin. Ghost hunters. <laughs> and I think, I think one thing about why we're so open to hearing different theories and, and to, you know, you know, presenting them, but never really getting attached to them is because we know as, as we say on the show, well, as I sing on the show, sources very wildly, like, it's just, there's, I'll say, you know, a, a particular source shows this and Amber says, oh, well, actually I saw it, you know, it as the complete opposite somewhere else or something, you know, like varied by a few years. So you have so many well, different sources. But also like, okay, so Scott and I have both had write-ups in the paper and the details. Yeah, that are, the police blotter. The details that have been correct are usually few and far between. Like they take a lot of liberties. Liberty. Yeah. Um, because well, Scott's Scott's brother had been involved in a, a car accident with an Amish buggy. <laughs> it was Wait a um, rewind. Yeah. Okay. So my brother uh, decided that it would be a good idea to hit an Amish horse and buggy. Doing uh, that had nine people in it, one of which was pregnant. Of course, so nine point seven five people in it hit them oh, doing so ninety miles an hour. Didn't fuck him up. Oh, hit them doing ninety miles an hour. It's probably the only time Amber's ever seen me drunk because we didn't know if people were going to live or die. And at that point, what power do I have over it? Nothing. So what do I do? I lay down and avoid. Plus, they were Amish, so you don't know if they're going to live or die after death either. That's true. That is true. But anyway, so the newspaper article about this ended with, there were Amish lying all over the road. The horses were okay. That's how it ended. I will never forget it because I was like, what? That's and, great writing, actually. And quite the opposite. All the people were okay. The horses died. Well, that's bad, journal. That's sad. But my brother is still a piece of shit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it was... No, it was, and, and, and another thing, as a researcher, as a historian, um, I'm sure you've all come across this. I know Lauren has. Um, if you're researching historical crime, let's say Victorian crime on American side or the British side or whatever... Everyone will say, oh, I found the contemporary newspaper reports. Well, guess what? Most of them are full of shit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The papers had to sell papers. You can't trust most of what's... If you can find three or four articles that say the same thing that are from different sources, then you can believe it. Because most papers were full of shit. Well, and that's the problem that we come across when we're doing our research is, is there's so many different articles saying different things that I would actually like try to seek out the middle ground sometimes just because I was like, I don't know what's true here. <laughs> no, it's, and, and, and it's funny because history, 
is rewritten and retold and becomes historical fact, um, which is, it, it's sad. You know, all it takes is one person to write a book about a time in history and be completely wrong, and they've changed and altered history for researchers for 100 years. And it happens far too often. That's actually a good uh, entry point for me to plug one of the podcasts I'm really into, which is uh, Our Fake History, where he delves into that and, and the, the different, uh, different topics throughout history, like how Machiavellian was Machiavelli, <laughs> you <Yeah>. know, <laughs> like stuff like that. And it's really fascinating because, you know, he distinguishes between primary and secondary sources. He talks about some of the signs that something wasn't, you know, that, that, that we now consider fact in, in this day and age, maybe didn't actually happen. Like, for instance, if they say, you know, oh, such and such happened in 1300, but the first accounts we have of it are in 1750, probably didn't happen. <laughs> yeah, it's, history is rewritten and retold and becomes fact. And, uh, which is a real pain in the balls for a researcher. <laughs> when when you're a historian trying to research a book and do something in and then you'll look like a fool. And even worse, if you find the truth and you correct people after 100 years, ooh, people hate you because you've just destroyed history to them. Yeah. And I've had that happen several times. Um, and, and it can happen in any form. It's funny. Um, the book that I have coming out now, uh, which is in the background of my picture, um, is a book about pro wrestling. Um, I'm not a pro wrestling guy. I never was. Never was a big pro wrestling guy. I'm a historian. I co-wrote this book with someone who was a pro wrestling guy. And it's about the history of wrestling and the performers and who were the greats of the business. Not the most famous or the ones who got the push, but who were the real great performers that helped influence the next generation of performers and, and to this day. Who are the wrestlers wrestlers, which is why it's called the wrestlers wrestler. And just, we talked to as many living wrestlers as we could that are still around. I mean, people from in their nineties to people who are 22 that are wrestling. Now we talked to for this book and we got a lot of stories from people that were absolute bullshit that we know were bullshit, but they'd been told those stories so many times that history's changed. So then when we correct them and say, actually, no, this is what happened and put it in the book, they get pissed. You're talking like that time Andre the Giant wrestled seven midgets. Well, that did happen, actually. See? I was told it didn't happen. No, it did. It wow. Did. Um, but, I mean, it, it, it's, a, it's, it's weird. It's like the one that I can specifically remember was about, and it's not going to make sense to anybody listening to this show probably, but... When Vern Gagne formed the AWA, um, just it was a power struggle behind the scenes and how he did it and who he manipulated and the deals they brokered behind the scenes. Turns out it wasn't true. It was actually done more kind of forcefully. Or you could say, you know, strong-armed. Well, that doesn't make as nice a historic story, so people are kind of pissed to see what really happened. But... That's what happens when, when, when history is rewritten because false facts are given. 
and I hate to say fake news, I'm not, I'm going to say false facts because it's always been around. You know, people have always fit stories to fit their narrative. And that becomes the gospel. And nowhere more than in true crime. Absolutely. Um, I'm curious, Lauren, you're dealing with an area that's like way back, you know, in medieval days, the the records and the archives and on on all your sources. I'm curious about how, you know, the the veracity of those and how you how you judge that. Um, Well, I think um, we've been very lucky to have lecturers that come from from both um, from both history and from both archaeology. Because the way that, you know, because archaeology is the, uh, medieval archaeology is the, um, is the casing point for the problem with historical records, is that um, a historical record is something that is written for a purpose. Um, you know, it is, it is biased because, you know, if you've got um, a, a document that was written um, in government, it's written with a certain point of view in mind. It will omit some details. So you've got um, medieval archaeologists that will go by the document, and they'll only go by the document, and that and that only informs you to a point. Whereas you know, I think that archaeology, ne- medieval archaeology, needs to expand and start. You know, maybe looking what's there first, and then consulting the records. Um, but it's very difficult as well because you're dealing with three different languages as well because there was English, Middle English and Old English and then you might have you might even have Anglo-Saxon in there somewhere as well. Um, you'll have Latin and have medieval French because of the, the Norman conquest. So you've got all different languages the way that I translate something might be different to where you translate something or Brian translates something. So all these additions is it's just crazy that you have so many variations of one source. Yeah, that's that's nuts. It kind of gives me this this sense of historical vertigo. This this kind of yeah. feeling like we don't know what's true, what's real. <laughs> it's all an illusion. Maybe Jeffrey Chaucer wrote it all. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Maybe Jeffrey that Chaucer is writing bastard. this. <laughs> that bastard. I ha I have problems with Jeff. <laughs> oh no, I I I ha- I did as well before I I'm kind of glad I've not really had to do any more Chaucer. Because when I did my A levels I was pretty um fed up of the Miller's tale by the end of it. I bet. <laughs> yeah, Lauren has more patience than anybody I know when it comes to research. And uh, that's why she is so suited for this field of study because she will just be like, no, I got to find out. I got to find out. It'll take time. Let me go. Whereas most people are just like so speedy. Lauren has more patience and is more calm and level-headed, which is why we need Laurens of the world because people like me are not as level-headed and Lauren slaps us down to reality. Yeah, it can't be really I think frustrating. I think that's what Christy does for us. She slaps Scott and I back down to reality all the time. <laughs> Getting a little sick of it, to be quite honest. <laughs> I want to know what I want to know what Scott's problems with Chaucer are. It sounds like he was scarred. Oh God, Canterbury Tales. There is no book in history that starts off so good and is such a fucking letdown as Canterbury Tales. I agree with you. 
Okay. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> like everybody's sitting here going like, where's Scott going with this? I don't know. What old Yeller. No, Old Yeller. Old Yeller's depressing, but that's what it's meant to do. Yeah. Canterbury Tales is just like, I've started. and Look at all these interesting characters. Toodles. <laughs> yeah, they don't even get to Canterbury. Yeah. No, no. Bastards. <laughs> what about They're probably sitting in the pub. The Epic of Gilgamesh is great. Like, the world's first superhero. And plus, you got to give it some leeway. It's the world's first story. The like, ending the, sucks. There is... Uh, yeah? <laughs> you go. I'm giving him some leeway. It's the world's first story. So, it's like... They, they sat and polished things up. No matter what. Canterbury Tales, it's disappointing because it starts off so goddamn good and ends... It doesn't really end. It just sort of peters off. It's like yeah, a, and the cook's, a, oh, the go ahead. Cook's tale just ends. The cook's tale just ends, and you're like, "What was that?" Oh man, yeah. I'm glad I found somebody who agrees with me. But you want to so, see Lauren? What, want to see an example of Lauren getting pissed about not knowing all the facts and research? Whenever I talk about all the guys, I think Bram Stoker was banging. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, Lauren. Know that Brian. We don't know that, Brian. Okay. Um, I, mean, I think we do. My wife never had any trouble. and We know. Do I have to talk about some of the letters to a certain journalist? I just think he was more Bam Stroker than Bram <laughs> Stoker. Oh, God. You're oh, now my hero. My <laughs> I think... That is a beautiful place to end this interview. I think that's yes, I think so too. That is, there is no better ending. I couldn't have dreamt a better one. Brand Stoker, oh my gosh! So uh, you're my new hero. This has been an interview with Brian and Lauren from Transatlantic History Ramblings. Go check out their podcast. The link will be in the show notes, and they have some interviews with some really amazing people. From the like field, us. like like us, yeah, <laughs> and and historians and researchers and writers and filmmakers and just there's, it, it's it's like you said earlier, Brian. It runs the gamut, which I think is is fantastic because there's something for everyone, no matter what area you're interested in, or if you want to get interested in a new area and check out something you haven't really uh, really delved into before, it can be great for that too. So check out their show and yeah this is just one of our our irregular interviews i think i might call them that we're just gonna throw into the feed from time to time whenever we talk to interesting cool funny people so <laughs> thank you guys so much uh for for joining us today and everybody go listen to their show now i command it so bye bye bye, bye. <laughs>